Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Regarding ID podcast. I'm Gina Jordan. Dave Burge found himself both happy and humiliated at a recent roundtable event in London. He was there to talk about his book, Identity is the New Money. While his book has been well-received, the people who bought it at the roundtable insisted on paying cash. As Birch questioned on his blog, if we can't persuade the nation's financial elite to use mobile payments, who can we persuade? That was very funny because we went to great lengths to have Bitcoin and PayPal, all these kind of things. Everyone used cash. I mean, I took that as a benchmark as just how poorly we as an industry have, have performed. I think I was lucky in the sense that I think I got the right topic at the right time to get this out at the right time. So maybe I can change a few people's minds. Birch is a director and global ambassador for Consult Hyperion, a firm based in the UK and the US that specializes in secure electronic transactions. Birch is well positioned to address digital payments and the identity economy, which he refers to as the reputation economy. The thing that makes commercial transactions possible is really got more to do with the reputation that's attached to identities. What I mean is enabling transactions to take place, reducing the cost associated with transactions, making transactions easier and more convenient by having access to an identity infrastructure that makes it easy for the counterparties to establish the reputations that are relevant to particular transactions. If I'm going into a bar in uh, Florida, I have to be 21 to get a drink. What enables that transaction to take place it's establishing the reputation that I'm 21 and in, more, in a more sophisticated environment, establishing the reputation that I'm allowed to drink at that bar, that I haven't been excluded or barred or anything like that. Like who I am isn't relevant to that transaction, if you see what I mean. So it's not really about my identity. It's about my reputation. And I, I guess that's what I mean. And when you say what's wrong with it, what's wrong with it is, of course, no such thing exists at the moment. And we end up using all sorts of bizarre proxies for several reasons, one of which is, and this is the central thing in my book, is that I think our mental models of identity are wrong. Uh, you know, in our heads, the way we think about identity is very backward-looking and historic. And it's sort of hard to think about digital identity and what identity in a virtual world is like, because it's richer and it's more sophisticated and it's different and it's sort of hard to imagine. So we fall back on those old things. I go into the bar and you ask to see my driving license. My driving license gives you all sorts of information, which is none of your business, you know, depending on which state. My height and weight, what your name is, what your date of birth is, things like this, they're collected as a byproduct of the transaction. And those things really should be explicit negotiations between what I would call digital identities, what Jaron Lanier calls economic avatars, but they're the same thing. In Birch's book, Identity is the New Money, Cash is Passé. He focuses on the technological changes that are merging payments with identity. He argues that social connections and mobile phones can work together to provide private and secure transactions. He finishes the book by calling for a rethinking of identity infrastructure, also known as entitlement infrastructure. That's a UK phrasing of it, and that's because Many years ago in the UK, before the failed attempt to introduce a national identity card, which failed here for the same reasons it would fail in the US, which is that it's just not part of our 
culture. It's not part of our mindset. There was a discussion going around about having some sort of national entitlement card. So you would have some sort of chip card or some sort of unforgeable card that you would carry, which would say that you were entitled to be resident here and you're entitled to medical care. Actually, I thought that really wasn't a bad idea. So in the book, I call for three things, really. I call for you know, establishing some sort of uh, entitlement scheme rather than identity scheme. And in the UK and in the US, there's already actually a framework that that could exist in, which in the US is called NSTIC, the National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace. And in the UK, it's called IDA, the Identity Assurance Program. But they're, they're a similar kind of framework. They both will work in a similar kind of way, which is to create a framework where the private sector can produce identities that can be consumed by the private and public sector. And I think that's not a bad idea, moving towards a more attribute-based exchange. Um, I talk specifically about the application of this in the financial services industry, which is my industry. There are issues to do with identifying and knowing customers, which are hugely expensive and problematic to implement. So perhaps one rather obvious user of this entitlement infrastructure would be the financial services industry. So it's like right now I go to a bank. I want an account. I have to produce all sorts of farcical documentation, which they can't check anyway. The whole thing's really a bit of a pantomime. Well, you know, like if I go and open an account at a bank in New York, they'll want to see my UK passport. They have absolutely no conceivable way of checking whether that's real or valid or not. But the point is, once I've been through all that and I've got my bank account, then why can't I have some kind of, I mean, I call it a financial services passport, which is probably the wrong word. You know, like I've had an account at my bank for something like, I'm going to embarrass myself now, 37 years, is that right? And if I went to open an account at another bank, they'd treat me like I just got off the boat. So there's an an enormous amount of money being wasted. So, uh, so I focus on, on financial services. And my third point, which isn't relevant to the U.S., but in the U.K., well, in the U.S., the Federal Reserve is undergoing a, a consultation concerning the future of the payment system, which will come out later in the year. In the U.K., we have a thing called a national payment plan, which isn't really a plan in any recognizable sense of the word. It's more a sort of set of vague aspirations. But I do say, you know, perhaps we should add this kind of thing to the national plan so that we drive identity forward in some ways. And the reason I'm quite keen on that is because I suspect that if there were some form of bank identity infrastructure, it would be used in a lot of other places. An easy way to think about that mentally is, suppose you had a bank app on your phone that could tell other people you know, I'm an American citizen, I'm over 21, I've been with Citibank for more than five years, whatever. But that's all. Actually, there might be a lot of places where you'd want to use that identity. And because Citibank are, in that example, protecting your identity, they're not telling people who you are, they're becoming a privacy kind of partner with you. I can sort of imagine that you could see new businesses and new platforms going in that direction. So broadly speaking, that's the kind of thing that I'm pushing for. Birch admits to being obsessed with Twitter. His followers are apt to witness rants about the imperfections of the world's identity systems. He says an identity infrastructure will bring about stronger security by allowing users to dump passwords. You know, I went to Starbucks this morning. I've run out of money in my account. I go to top it up. I forgot the damn password to top it up. 
And I put it on Twitter and I said, you know, like right now, in a world with a working identity infrastructure, I've already logged into my phone. My phone knows it's me. You know, the Starbucks app knows where it is. It's like, well, hold on a second. This is a Starbucks. This kind of looks like Dave's phone. And he's kind of doing something in that he usually does, you know, Starbucks he usually goes to. You know, why am I bothering him with stupid passwords and things? But in three, four, five years' time, that's not going to be your Starbucks app. That's going to be your house in this Internet of Things, which has absolutely no identity infrastructure connected to it at all. And so when you start to think, well, in practical terms, how am I going to give my car permission for my wife to drive it and to use my highway toll pass or whatever, I don't know. Like in practical terms, when my son calls up and says, oh, I'm stuck outside the house, I lost my keys, and I say, okay, it's all right, I'll unlock it using my phone app or whatever. Like in practical terms, that really can't be screwing around with passwords anymore. There's got to be something else there. And I think it should be done at the infrastructural level so the security is built into those things from a technological point of view, we know that we can do it, but it needs the right kind of mental perspective to make that happen. And I think that's, that's probably where we fall down a tiny bit at the moment. Birch says he is very much in favor of the White House's NSTIC initiative. He'd like to see NSTIC underpinning all sorts of things connected with modern technology like mobile phones. He wants to see driver's licenses and the like transformed into digital identities. And if we can dump passwords, might cash be next? Birch says with an ample identity infrastructure, we wouldn't need money anymore because the system could keep score. There's a quote I love from a guy called Jack Weatherford, who's a social anthropologist in the US, who wrote a book a few years ago about the history of money, a very good book. And so a few years ago, Jack Weatherford said, I'm paraphrasing, I can't remember the exact quote, he said the future of money is going to be more like money in the Neolithic past than the money that we have now. And I'm very sympathetic to that view. I think that when, you know, the system can remember everything, who owes everybody what, a bit like in your Neolithic clan, you don't need the intermediaries. So in the far future, I can sort of see that. In the short term, first of all, the US is a very unusual and special case, right? The UK, we have a pound coin. Uh, in Canada, you know, there's a dollar coin. If you suggest anybody in the US uses a dollar coin, they go berserk. And it's all to do with history and so on. But the American relationship with money is very odd compared to other countries, I have to say. And you get into this ridiculous thing where I go to buy a stupid ticket on the subway and I have to literally go and iron dollar bills and then, then carry them between the leaves of a book down to the transit station so I can feed my dollar bill in. I mean, it's crazy stuff. Uh, it doesn't make any sense at all, especially since I'd rather just use my debit card anyway. Actually, as a great many other people do too. So I have, a, I have an odd theory about that. I think it's going to become a class issue in the U.S. I know Americans think class is a British obsession. But I think if you're middle class in America, you barely touch cash as it is. So the middle class will use debit and will move away. Actually, will move away from checks as well. Move online, move to mobile. You see the growth of Venmo in the U.S. Um, I think that's a really interesting indicator. And cash will become the, the preserve of the poor and the rich. Obviously, I'm rather against cash because I think the anonymity of cash privileges the rich and the powerful 
uh, against the rest of us because it's unaccountable. And for the poor, it's a devastating product. Cash is a terrible product for the poor because they pay a much higher proportion of transaction costs than the rest of us do. You know, so I, I have, if you like, I have moral and ethical objections to cash, as well as the arguments purely around economic efficiency. If you look at the figures from the Federal Reserve, you can see very clearly in the US that the production of low-value bills, which are the bills used for retail, it's lagging GDP, which is what you'd expect, because the proportion of payments at retail point of sale that are non-cash is steadily going up. So therefore, the amount of low-value cash in circulation is, is lagging GDP. It's falling. But if you look at the total amount of cash in circulation, this is because of $100 bills, which you can't even use in most shops, that leads GDP significantly. So in other words, a greater and greater proportion of cash is only being used for non-retail point-of-sale purposes. And we all know what those purposes are. Drugs, prostitution, tax evasion, bribing congressmen, that sort of thing. So there's a criminality uh, associated with cash as well, which I also think probably needs some kind of recognition at the regulatory level. The U.S. and the U.K. are rife with holdouts, those people who like good old-fashioned cash and who don't trust the world of digital identity and currency. Birch thinks the non-believers actually present arguments that support his perspective. So I would say, let's move towards the center of the bell curve, okay? So, yes, there are some people up a mountain in West Virginia with a machine gun who are never going to have a federal government mark of the beast under any circumstances. We're not talking about people like that. We're talking about, you know, the, the broad majority of people in the middle. Their attitude towards this is very paradoxical, in a sense. In the UK, I would call it the Daily Mail paradox. In the US, I annoyed some people by calling it the Hillary Clinton paradox because she gave a speech about internet governance a few years ago. And so broadly speaking, you know, Hillary Clinton said, you know, the internet's a wonderful thing, it should be free, and we should encourage the transmission of information and knowledge, and nations shall speak unto nation, and blah, 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 except for people that we don't like. And that's the paradox at the heart of this. So we want the government to spy on the terrorists and the paedophiles and, uh, you know, the drug, but they, we don't want them to spy on us. And we can't really square that circle. We have to find another way to deal with it. And my suggestion in the book is about the use of digital identities to address this. When we were talking about the example in the bar, if I have a digital identity that's given to me by my bank, which tells the bar uh, in a cryptographically secure way that I'm, I'm a state resident and I'm over 21, they never need to know my name. So my identity remains protected, locked up in the bank vault where it's safe. And what's actually passing around in the great wide world are the attributes to that identity, authenticated credentials that enable me to do things. So I think those concerns are genuine, but I think actually digital identity is a way out of the problem, you know, rather than the contributor. If we continue to have our old notion of identity, you know, the idea that you're this passport identity, and everywhere you go you have to present that identity and give all of your personal details in order to engage in any kind of transaction. That's devastating. That's precisely what we want to get away from with a well-crafted digital identity infrastructure. So I accept those concerns, but I feel that I'm providing something positive around that. Dave Birch is a founding director of Consult Hyperion. He's also an author who professes to never getting bored talking about this stuff. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Regarding ID podcast.